1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to a brand new Motorsport podcast series. I'm Ed Foster, and this time we're turning our attention to Porsche. The series is called Porsche's Winning Formula. Ever since Ferdinand Porsche designed the Volkswagen Beetle in 1939, eight years after launching his eponymous company in 1931, Porsche has been at the forefront of vehicle design. While the pretty 356 was the first car to carry the Porsche name in the late 1950s, Many of you will automatically think of the 911 that arrived over 10 years later. Arguably the most successful sports car of all time. The model is still being built nearly 60 years later. In those years, Porsche has won the Le Mans 24 hours more than any other manufacturer. It's been victorious in Formula One, both as a constructor and an engine supplier. And it's won countless GT championships with its beloved 911. Porsches have even done rallycross and rallying. In this special podcast series, we are going to speak to the racers that are at the forefront of the German manufacturer's racing development, and key names from the road car side to get a better idea of how this great company has had so much success for so long. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Motorsport Podcast. This is another one in our Porsche series called Porsche's Winning Formula, and it is in partnership with the British luxury yacht manufacturer, Princess Yachts. Good morning, Jochen Mass. Welcome back to the Motorsport Podcast.
2: Thank you, Ed. Thank you very much.
1: I I don't know if you remember, but the last one we did together was 2016 at Goodwood with Rob Widows. Um, And actually, I I listened to it again the other day, and we spent most of the time laughing. (laughs) (laughs) And I see you're armed with the glass of vodka already. So um, I'm looking forward to the next hour. That's just to enhance the laughter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So every time yeah. we do a podcast with you, we always get hundreds of readers' questions in. So I've yet, yet again, we've got loads of readers' questions in. So I I will endeavour to ask as many as possible. Um, but I thought we, last time we sort of talked about your early career, the Capris, um, you know, the hill climbs, and and how you got into racing. But this podcast is sort of mostly about Porsche. Um, when was your first contact with Porsche? It was
2: 1976, apparently. They gave me a, an invite, and I saw them in the old Weissach. You know, just thinking back of the company, there were wooden sheds. I mean, it was fantastic. There was nothing much of Weissach. Weissach, the track was there, and um, but that was it. And the officers were wooden shacks. I mean, it was fantastic. Not shacks, I mean, there were houses, if you like, I mean they were decent insight, <laughs> but that's what it was very simple and very modest <clears throat> so i thought that's interesting porsche you know it's not like uh, cds or ferrari or whatever you knew even alfa romeo was a more established sort of looking company in terms of racing and uh, <clears throat> now porsche was quite um, quite an experience i mean i came from ford and then uh, ford was pretty much upset that I signed for Porsche. I said, but guys, you have touring cars, you don't do much else. You don't help me much in uh, Formula One with the engines and so on because of uh, circumstance and things like that. So Ford was very much uh, bent on Formula One in the UK, of course, the McLaren and and, uh, of course Chapman, the Lotus and, you know, so it was, and Tyrrell, of course, Jackie Stewart, tyrrell So that was much more important than this young upcoming German, you know, who also would like to have access to some better engines, but you know, it's all snow from yesterday. So we don't really, it's been melting my brain <laughs> ever since. So <laughs> it's, uh, no, yeah, that was nice. So anyway, so I got this invitation from from Porsche and I signed for them. And, to me there was I'm a Porsche works driver it was a big thing because uh, Porsche after all was a big name in motorsport and uh, it made me made me proud to be invited and to be signed on as a works driver so um it reflected some of the quality i possessed that's <laughs> so on so, but it was but, good
1: but yeah. before you know in 1976 this was before You know, we think of Porsche now, the most successful manufacturer at Le Mans. But really, yes, it had won Le Mans, but it it was nowhere near where it is today. So was it, in your mind, was it not a gamble at all? Porsche, even then, was kind of one of the places to be for sports car racing.
2: Oh, Porsche needed me badly to make (laughs) it better. (laughs) No, no, I'm joking. But of course, you know, as Porsche finally um, was hell-bent to make it You know, you had the super sports cars, the 917s, in all sort of configurations, fantastic cars, but they were a little bit too removed from the European race scene. So our sports cars were a little bit more modest. You know, we had the 936 just coming then in carbon fiber. Can you believe it? So um, the body was carbon and and so on. And then we had, of course, the 935s, which were developed. And the nine thirty fours, which I didn't think much because it was more or less a road car, and so on. So that was uh, quite interesting. But Porsche obviously had the desire to make Porsche closer to the publics, uh, to the public availability. I mean, they could buy these cars and they could run them, and that was an important factor. You know, so a lot of teams bought Porsche race cars. You know, 936s, not so much a few of them, and uh, but uh, all the 911 based cars and the 935s that were in, in great shapes and, and sizes and sponsorships and whatever in private hands. So that was nice. It was good to see. And um, so that made racing. It carried racing then because it was Porsche and Porsche and Porsche. And there were not many others <laughs> who could compete against them. And even the customers groaned, you know, they said, yeah, but we also have the same car as you, presumably, but they're not as exactly the same as your cars. We said, we know nothing about it. said, I thought we had the same, and so on so. You know, (laughs) we could live with it, Jackie and I, (laughs) Jackie Hicks. We could live with this sort of fact that we had of naturally coming from the factory. We had the best cars. You know, we had whatever there was developed and it was proven better. We had it first. So only fair, isn't it?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, the works team should always be the should always be the one yeah. most likely to yeah. win. Did you, it's, did you, I mean, obviously not in period, but have you driven 917s? The 917
2: 9-1-7 I never drove, no. The first time, in fact, I drove a 917, <laughs> 30, was in Goodwood.
1: Really? I the, never the had hell. a
2: chance to drive it and I never had any particular desire because it, in the beginning, the 970 Coupes, the Coupes, they were too early for me. I wasn't quite in that league yet. You know, I just started with Alfa Romeo and with Ford saloon cars and so on. So that was a little bit beyond me. I would have loved to have driven the, nine, the 9083 and if possible at the Targa Florio and races like that. That was something. Very desirable for me. And unfortunately, I was also a little bit too late for that, you know, sort of in my race career.
1: Yeah. In terms of racing, do you slightly wish that you were born kind of 20, 30 years earlier? Because I always think that your kind of approach to life and and racing and the cars that, you know, talking there about the 908 and things like that. You would, have, would you prefer to race them than something like the 962, 956, which I know you, I think you're a fan of? Had
2: I, been, had I been born that much earlier, I think I would have been killed in the war. <laughs> you know, that's... <laughs> it would have probably that's, joined, that's the, <laughs> or joined I, the submarines <laughs> or something like that, and that would have been a you know, no-no. So, I, I did Don't forget it, that. You're ten, years would have, 10 years would have done me fine. <laughs> you know, sorry. 10 years earlier or five years earlier would have been good. Yeah. I mean, don't forget, I was quite late when I started racing. So I could have started earlier already, but um, because I was not a Merchant Navy, so we don't have to repeat that. So I didn't do it. But um, till it finally sort of blossomed in my, in my imagination that I could do it, that I should do it, I was quite old. So it was just one of these things. A lot of guys had the same, had similar fates, especially then Lafitte was also, he started when he was 28. So can you imagine? And now he's nearly 90.
1: <laughs> he made it, he made it, he made yeah. it, yeah. The, um, you know, one of your kind of, I suppose your favourite tracks, the, the Nürburgring, you had so many great results there, whether that was in a V6 Capri or whether that was in Formula One, when really you you probably could have, should have won there twice. Yeah. Um, what is it about the Nürburgring that you like so much? Because on the other hand, another fast circuit, Le Mans, you didn't actually really like that so much.
2: Um, Le Mans, let's say, I had a grudge against the Automobile Club, the West. Now, I'm saying that now, sort of so many years back. But in the beginning, when I joined them, it was 72, the first race I did. And uh, it was, unfortunately, the last race for Joaquin Bonnier who got killed in that race. And I thought, hmm, a good guy, a lovely man. I had met him before at Jackie Stewart's house in um, in Switzerland and so on. And I really regretted these sort of happenings. And I felt, and I loved Le Mans as a track. What I didn't like were the pits, the safety in terms of guardrail fixation and all that. That was not good. And um, there was a, quite an arrogant attitude within the, you know, this sort of FIA independent automobile club. They were older than the FIA and so on. And to them, they could do what they wanted and so on. And uh, they were pretty deaf for some suggestion from drivers and um, to make it somewhat safer, because we had lost the driver every single year and probably some marshals as well which you didn't hear much about but um so that was the beginning Le Mans, and the pits were very narrow and it was yeah i mean you drove hard and you tried to get away from the bunch you were with and trying to get a, a bit of a cushion and then you came to the pits and then marshall held you when you wanted to leave again uh-uh. he held you because there was a, a car you let's say on the upper end Closer to the exit of the pits, and on the bottom end, a car came in, and this car, you couldn't see it because of the lights. Often, Um, he just held you because that car probably went past you just ahead of you, but he probably parked sort of five, five uh, uh, pits before you and things like that. So it was Jackie nearly went onto the throat of one. (laughs) One year he was so upset about it and so on and this sort of things I didn't like much that's why Le Mans to me was uh, a race which I disliked only because of this automobile club really it was not the track as such Mm. you know the safety was not good We know that but um, I loved the high speeds and I loved you know the way it, it ran and it was it was quite fascinating especially you know, we didn't do this Maison Blanche corners and so on. So we had the chicanes already in 72. And um, it was slightly rerouted. So you didn't run behind the wall. There was a big wall now. And there was still the old road running there. And there was this little Maison Blanche, the White House. Not the American one, but the Le Mans one, a small one. <laughs> and, um, you know, there was then you had this long corner going over the Dunlop brow and so on so we still had that but of course we had less speed we carried less speed and that the old track was even faster because you went flat out most of the most of the time so it was a bit better but i liked the dunlop brow and i liked the, the left right end and then the bottom and then the right end again onto the straight and um, it was nice that i really liked as a as a as a venue to race on Mm. but um you know anyway so new booking was completely different obviously and um the new booking had a different melody you know when you drove it it was <laughs> it was you had to to settle in and you had to be able to drive like Le Mans 2, but it was much more complicated than Nürburgring. you had to drive it in your in your head before you know with your eyes closed and with a stopwatch in your hand and you started, and then you drove your mind the whole Nurburgring, and if you were within ten seconds, you knew you you had it. You know you were you were set for the Nurburgring. That was nice. I mean, I drove it the first time, I think in uh, '67, few laps, a few eighty laps or so, <laughs> a friend's car, and um, your, your poor you know, friend's it, car. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but um, yeah, so I really had imbibed it. I mean, it was part of me, the Nürburgring was, I really liked it. Because, you know, watching it, I mean, I watched the the, the six hours or the four hours or whatever 1000 kilometers touring cars, mm. the Alphas, some early Porsche 911s also raced there. And um, those months and so on. But they were good, obviously, but there weren't so many at the time. And the BMWs, of course, the 1800 and the two liter TIs and it was Hubert Hahn and Andrea Adamic and Ciccoli and Faschetti and Giunti and all these Italian drivers who were fantastic with the Alphas. And I was a, an Alfa man because I worked for Alfa then. And I really liked the cars. So that was um, it was very satisfying to drive for the Nürburgring. You know, you knew exactly when you had to. The jumps, you know, where the cars took off a little bit and then landed, and then you could just take it in a nice double right hander and make it one, and sliding it a little bit, and it was to me totally harmless. It was just exciting, but it it didn't it didn't give me any fear or whatever, or sort of worries about this or that. No, it was you had to take it in your thing, and you know the car bounced a little bit here or there, because the road was not as smooth as it is now, of course, it was quite bumpy. So when we drove with the 956s and the 962s, you had exactly two moments on the whole 22 kilometers where you could watch your instruments. Other than that, you were only focused on the road in front of you. Ref limiter was all in your ears. You, you, you never looked at a ref limiter. You know, you knew roughly where you had to change because that's where you were on the, on the track. But you drove in the middle of the road trying to find the entry for the next corner already. You know, to give it the most, uh, just going to the right or to the left edge of the road to make it for the corner. And um, it was incredible. But um, it was very satisfying. To me, one good lap at Nürburgring was nearly the whole race on some other circuit. So um was good. And I think most people felt the same.
1: Uh, so there's Neil Wooding here. Um In 1983, uh, Jochen would have been joint champion with X if Porsche hadn't changed lineups for Le Mans. How did the Le Mans pairings come about? And was the decision made pre-season? Was he happy to drive with Belloff? Um And this is, did you not have as part of your contract that you wouldn't race at Le Mans?
2: yeah, yeah, sure. I put it in my contract with Porsche. I said, please, I do not want to do Le Mans. And I gave him all the reasons. I said, it's not that I fear anything for my safety or whatever. I just wanted to make a protest to force the race directory to make it safer and to make it a bit smarter. And so on and to away with all these sort of too antique situations like the pits and so on. So, that's why and they but they said, but please, you have to come anyway, because you will be our reserve driver. I said, I know where that ends. So I drove it anyway, but you know, usually in the second or the third car and um, often cars which were already slightly injured <laughs> and so I was driving those on five cylinders sometimes. And when I had one crash with a 936, I followed the Renault and the, the Porsche was handling very well. And in the Porsche corners, I was going really fast, you know, for what the car could do on five cylinders. But I could get closer to the to the Renault again. It was Shabui. And um, so I enjoyed that it was just playing, you know, I was joking. And then whew, I spun around hectically <laughs> and I hit the arm backwards. Not too bad, but anyway, enough to do to do the critical damage to the car. And so on. So You know, that's what happened too, of course, but um, it was not real racing for me then. It was just sort of a, okay, I sat in this car or that car as a substitute for somebody or just helping along. While Jackie, of course, you know, if he changed car, he jumped into the leading car. They put him into the leading car because they wanted him to win. Mm. Which is fair enough. I mean, he was a bloody good driver in Le Mans and um, he was always a good driver. But um, so it was interesting. I, I never got that because I didn't work myself into this position that they said, okay, Master also deserves it and um, he could be blah, blah. No, nope, that didn't happen. But it was my fault, nobody else.
1: And uh, the, in reference to Neil's question, um, in 83, you would have been joint champion. Uh, with X if Porsche hadn't changed the lineups for Le Mans was that because of what you've just been saying in terms of you not really wanting to do Le Mans going along as a reserve
2: well that's the reason of course that's why Derek Bell came in and drove with Jackie
0: so
1: normally we would have always driven Le Mans as well
0: together
2: Jackie and I because we got on very well on all the other races and um, because I said I didn't want to so they chose Derek and Derek was good anyway so it was fine
1: yeah there's there's actually there's quite an amusing one here um about a t-shirt um james atkinson was wondering whether you once wore a t-shirt saying i'm stuck with bell on it
2: sorry i didn't get that
1: (laughs) apparently you once wore a t-shirt that said i'm stuck with (laughs) bell is that true (laughs)
2: <laughs> no, I never, I never <laughs> got that one. No, no I'm
1: no. sorry, James. Well, maybe we can, we can make get one of those made up, um, and, and then you can wear it. Um, <laughs> yeah. The uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about the 956 and the 962 because obviously the, the, the 917, the 935, the 936, Moby Dicker kind of um, put Porsche very much on the sports car map. But really, for me, the 956 and 962 is what cemented Porsche's history in sports cars but they were obviously fantastic cars to drive, weren't they?
2: Well, obviously, they were the most wonderful cars. We had the 936, which was not a bad car, but of course it was outdated by then. So the coupes from Renault, and they were quicker already. You know, they just had too many little glitches go wrong, so they didn't beat us off. But um, no, we had, you know, Singer already thought then to make a new car, to replace the 936, and this was the 956. And I drove the 936 in in Castellet. I think I told the story quite often. Um, and then he said, "Okay, stop. They've got the 956 now, and you drive that one now." And I said, "Great." So we sit in it. And with the 936, it was funny, you know. It was. It was still a circuit where you had to watch certain corners. You know, it was. Aerodynamically good, but not as grippy as the other ones, the 956s and 962s. So you had this fast S after the pits, fairly long straight, and then you had this, and that S you had to take precisely. You know, you had to take it, um, you know, really fully concentrated so you could take it flat, which, which we all did finally. But um, it took Wadi, for an example, it took him when he drove for for Porsche, the race, it took him two days to take it flat, because he couldn't get himself to do it. And I said, do it, Wadi. I said, we all do it. You can do it. (laughs) And and finally he did it, of course. But, um, you know, then I jumped into the 956, and you sit in a new car, and you look at the instrumentation and the way everything is so it's not that dissimilar to the other one but um anyway and then you go out and you accelerate fast and you go down the road and then you end up in the bottom of the circuit where you have a double right and the fast kink the fast left one and the two kilometers straight and um i arrived and i said hold it i said did i take a shortcut i couldn't remember certain corners, they weren't there anymore with this car. There were no more corners, it was incredible, it was good. So, you know, when I came in just for a checkup, quickly if everything was right and solid and no leaks anywhere. And I said, No, but I don't know, but um, that car is so damn good. It drives completely different. I didn't don't recognize the circuit anymore. It's it's uh, and so on. So
0: Mm.
2: it was quite funny, Mm. you know, you still couldn't take the top end in uh, senior, you know, after the long straight, you have this fast 90 degree right hander, And um, I wanted to do it flat, but we didn't quite do it flat. And I'm not quite sure the speed we've done after coming along, you know, flat out, obviously the two kilometer straight And uh, I think we probably did 360, something like that, We must have done. And um, so I didn't take it flat, we probably only did it with the miserly 340 or so, which is nothing. (laughs) Yeah, but it's, um, the car was intriguing. And you know, it was so nice, responsive in terms of when you made some small alterations, you know, when you had a bit of in Hockenheim, for an example, um, I spoke to Norbert In qualifying, I was quickest. I said, Novak, I've got a slight understeer in the in the east curve, <laughs> the east corner. Um, can we lower the front end a little bit? He said, Yo, we raise it a bit. I said, mm, Raise it. He said, Try it. So they did that. Minimal. I mean, and it was better. And it was a simple thing, these aerodynamics, the way they worked. So you, by raising the front end, you allowed more air to come under the car. And it got the greater mass of air got compressed earlier. So it got compressed and it accelerated earlier through the underfloor to the back of the car. So it gave you more downforce, more grip on the front end of the car. So you could and he knew all that from his uh, wind tunnels. And, um, you know, and then he translated it into the car on the track. It was fantastic. I said, and there's lots of other tuners, you know, of, uh, Kramer. He was also, they worked on a complete different principle. They always thought they could improve the worst cars by giving it a big splitter in front to, to work with a mechanical grip more than anything else big rear wing and so on and i drove this car a little while ago three four years ago in uh, in um, laguna seca it was bruce levin's car which Klaus ludwig at the time drove and um it was typical Kramer and the car was quick and it was okay but it was twitchy it was not forgiving and so on so that was the difference between our cars that were much nicer to drive, much more predictable and things like that. And they were as quick, but they didn't seem to be so edgy, you know, like the other one. And so on. So that was quite intriguing. And um, you know, to work with an engineer like Norbert Singer was just fantastic, you know, because he really put you onto the fine points which he worked out in the wind tunnel, and then you 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 felt it and you felt the improvement and that's nice you know that's that's the mark of a I mean he made a car which was even today it would be quick still mm. okay less so I agree but um it's still you know the last one the nine sixty two in the latest version had a very refined I still haven't driven it because I was really with Mercedes and all that but the car never raced that car never raced. They just tested it, and um, it was too good. <laughs> and um, I still would like to drive it. One of these, maybe this year, maybe next year, yeah. somewhere. Yeah, when we have a chance.
1: Well, that sounds like a potential motorsport magazine article for uh, Joe Dunn, the editor, to organise and get you get you in that.
3: Say hello to a new era of mental health care.
1: Carl, uh, we've been talking a bit about Norbert Singer. There, um, we we did a recording with him quite recently, actually, for this this Porsche series. Yeah. How instrumental was he to all of that Porsche success back in the eighties and nineties? And because um, he really he was he was there. He was he even worked on the nine one seven. You know, I mean, it, it, an extraordinary career he had.
2: Look, you had obviously um, Professor Bott, who was the head of VISA, who was instrumental first. To make the decision, to work this way or that way, and Norbert Singer was the engineer who put it all together. And uh, without Norbert Singer, the company would have not been where it is now. It would have been much later, you know, than everything. And Singer was just a brilliant engineer, very nice person to work with. And these guys, you know, you have Rory Byrne for an example, the designer was uh, in Formula One. You had Patrick Hitt, you know, who was also quite philosophers and they loved other things. And, you know, um these <laughs> they, they they always struck me as very modest sort of people. You know, they're not boasting around and well, I'm the greatest and isn't that. I mean, far not. They were very quiet and they knew what they knew and they knew they could interpret the things. So they needed also some drivers to work with them closely and to underst- make them understand what he would like to have, the driver, so he could implement that a bit later and so on. And uh, it's, um, it's fantastic. You know? it's, um, it's a great gift. I think the good engineers, they're rarer than drivers you know, you have happy-go-lucky drivers who sit in the car and they're quick and so on, but they're not very analytical in their sort of switchback information and feelings and this and that. Some are very good, some are not so hot and so on. But the engineers, they're fantastic. They are really, really good. And if you have a very expressive driver, Jackie Stewart, I mean, and Taranak and these guys, you know, wonderful wonderful combinations of driver engineers designers and uh, that's what you need and then you become successful but um, you also have to work with the with the drivers and the engineers so this doesn't happen overnight so it sometimes needs two or three or four years even you know to to get this combination really ticking properly and so on so that's uh it's very intriguing mm-hmm. i like I like to work with, uh, or I always have like to work with uh, engineers who are on a similar wavelength philosophically than I was. So you could talk about different things. You don't always have to talk about cars. and um, But you still got to the point. And that was very, very um, how should I say? It was a, a very humbling experience too, I think. Hmm? You know, it's just little things and they make such a world of a difference. Yeah, it's nice.
1: It's interesting you, you say that because I've always thought that you would have worked brilliantly with Patrick Head. Um, not only do you both share a love of the sea, um, but, you know, twice you missed out on a Williams drive. You know, that you could have been there with, with Patrick Head.
2: I know, I regret it to the end of my days.
1: <laughs> Sorry to bring yeah, it up on, it was, a, it was, on a Sunday morning.
2: <laughs> no, 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 sure. It was really a pity that I didn't do it. It was, yeah. you know, when... I mean, Jackie Oliver and the Arrows and, uh, you know, our um, Tony Southgate, they were also good guys. They were also nice. Yeah. Southgate was a very good engineer, but a bit stubborn when he was in a sort of a, a cul-de-sac. He didn't turn around. So he, he tried to to find an exit for that and to continue and um, anyway and for an example with him with the uh, funny patent pending car we had which was aerodynamically quite advanced really we have to give it to them and um but we were sprung totally wrong the springs were far too soft so we had all the downforce and the car started purposeing all the time
1: wasn't it you were using three eighty pound springs rather than two thousand four hundred or something like that, right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. yeah. I mean it wasn't just a little lightly sprung, it was no, in it was, it was uh, a, a different ten times ten times <laughs> yeah. times um I must ask some of these readers questions. Uh, there's one here from Michael Skeet, um it's quite interesting because obviously you raced a fair amount in America um in sports mm. cars, which I, I quite want to talk to you about. Um he's asking, did you ever test drive an Indy car? Um, and think about forging a career over there
2: then we're back at Porsche yes we did all the development I drove the Porsche IndyCar first in uh, in Weissach then in and we did the whole season developing and I was offered by um, Porsche to run the car in uh, Tamiami Trail in Miami in Florida And, um, of course, I couldn't do it because I didn't have the time to to need a fortnight to do your rookie test. And I knew that, so I knew I couldn't do it. I wasn't allowed to do it, but I regretted it because I really wanted to race in the States then. And, um, yeah, it was something with the contracts and with um, Al Holbert, who was really in charge of Porsche Motorsport in the States. And we didn't get on at all, honestly not. And um, he never told me a straight thing in the eye. (laughs) He just circumvented it. And um, he said, I give you a call. Good to know that you want to drive next year. Good to know, he said. I give you a call in November. November, December, January. I waited. (laughs) And I I got hold of him again. Uh, I said, oh, I'm glad Did you called me. I said yes, and he said, "Ah, oh, I've just signed Theo Fabi yesterday." This sort of thing. I said, "You're such a... Sh-. Honestly, I mean, it was so annoying. Anyway, so I don't have to talk bad about him. I don't want to. He's um, he was, let's say, a very manipulative <laughs> character. So, anyway, and um, pity." But he was, other than that, he was a very good driver and so on. But I watched him drive the car and he wanted, he drove deliberately slow. That's what I could see from the outside in Miami then. And um, that whole singer, mm, because he wanted a different chassis. He wanted a a, um, um, Dallara or a March or Lola, I can't remember. Either way, but he didn't want the Porsche chassis. I don't know why not, and the Porsche was in the beginning a little bit tricky um, because there was a lot of joints, you know, a lot of um, things when there was too much friction under load, so they didn't work. It didn't work freely enough, and um, so they put in wheel bearings, no needle bearings, small ones, into all these sort of necessary connections and then it became better and better at the end the car was very very good I think it was quicker than nikki's formula one you know nikki with the formula one was slower than this uh, this uh, indy car and I thought that car would have deserved to run in indy because it would have been a bloody good car but um, I don't know the politics stopped it that mm-hmm. this was really pity
1: Yeah. yeah. Sticking with America, um, you won the nineteen eighty seven Sebring twelve hours with Bobby Rahal. Um, Obviously, Bobby is is was and um, such a kind of a hero of American motorsport. Um, What was he like to drive with? What was he like as a person?
2: Bobby drove much of the season against each other, and I usually beat him. You know, and um, he was a heck of a nice guy. Bobby was super super nice, very cool, and. um, no, we got on very well, and, um, you know, I had no no grudge, you know, if if he would have been quicker, but he wasn't necessarily quicker than I was, but he was he was a very good driver. So, you know, the 12-hour Sebring is always a bit of a tricky, tricky track, so you have to be um, aware of all the little sort of unfortunate bumps and cracks and whatever on the track, not to destroy your car too early, not to overload it. With um, undue undue stress, and so on. So, Bobby was very good with that. He was a good driver. Yeah. Mm.
1: Now, d- your you know, despite all your Le Mans twenty four hours um, races mm. in Porsches, it took a, a Cyber Mercedes for you to win it in eighty nine. What were the big differences between not just the car, but also going from Porsche to the cyber team? Were they was it a big change, or was was it actually all quite natural?
2: No, the Porsche team was very professional. The cars were very good, and so on. And we, we should have won it. I mean, with Beloff, we should have won it too, because we were leading. And Jackie had a bit of a uh, problem early in the race, so um, we were leading, you know, and um, by a lap. And we kept that lead for most of the race. And then um, something, some trivial things in the engine, some gasket nonsense, and so on. We had water in the oil, and da 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 da, from the water cooled heads. And uh, a pity. so twice we had similar small problems where I could have won with Porsche already and should have won but um anyway should have could have <laughs> you know that one but um when I then got to Mercedes to sauber sauber was super nice man, but it was a small team. I mean it was incredible. For example we had, Practice in, in Silverstone, and I said this was an '88. And I said, um, I would love to drive now. Or can I, sitting in the car? He said, No, you have to wait till the other car comes in. We don't have enough people to to run two cars on the track at the same time. I said, Excuse me, <laughs> <laughs> but that's the way it was, you know. So, <laughs> so um, but the cars aerodynamics with Leo res who was a very good engineer too. Um, it was a good combination and uh, I think the car was just one step ahead again of the Porsches aer- aerodynamically and the way it was built I mean the old C9 was still half aluminium half carbon or less than half and um, so the car was quite forgiving but then we also ran funny tires we know that and um that didn't quite work well together. The tire combination with, uh, with the chassis and the springing and all that, that was a bit of, needed a bit of work. And, um, you know, we tested in uh, in Harris, which was great. And um, I asked Peter, Peter Sauber, I said, have you ever done any uh, shock observer tests? You know, he said, never, I said, well, let's go, let's do it. In Hockenheim, then we had Bilstein. they came up and so on. And then we had two days to try things differently. And the people were very good, the engineers, they were very together and very imaginative. So because the adjustment of the damping is very critical, you have the high, high frequency the low frequency, you have the middle frequency, you have all these little valves inside which allow you know, the damper to work in a certain way, in certain uh, certain speeds and um, they could do that well and they had all the machines to put them in and to memorize it and all that. It was brilliant. So we had a very good car after that. It was nice. And you know, the springing, the damping is so important to work also with the tires. If you have a tire which is too, too soft in the sidewalls and too hard the to spring, or damping, it doesn't work because the tire is flexing too much and so on. And that doesn't, you know, so you need either a different tire or set up the car completely different again. Less downforce, because with this massive amount of downforce that is uh, very high speeds, it's in uh, intriguing. You know, you have you gain what three tons, four tons of weight, you know, at um 350, 380. 400 kilometers. So um that can that can break the car and can break the tire for sure. So that was something which had to had to be worked out. And there I was lacking a little bit. I was missing Norbert Singer as well. He was um, you know, very he was, let's say, more experienced than Leo.
1: If I could just pause for a moment, I hope you're all enjoying this series of Porsche podcasts. And I just wanted to do- thank our partner princess yachts without whom we wouldn't be able to do these so thank you so much to them princess yachts has been a long-term supporter of motorsport magazine and it's great to have them on board for these podcasts which really have become a part of modern day motorsport much like the one with the green cover princess yachts epitomizes the best of british manufacturing and you can really see that in every one of its products Every yacht is designed with an amazing forward thinking mentality, and you must head to princessyachts.com to have a look at what this extraordinary company does on a daily basis. The, you mentioned Stefan Beloff there. Um was you know, are you always my I suppose my age group always hears how amazing Stefan Beloff was and how he would have been a future world champion. What was your experience of him when you raced with him and against him?
2: Look, first you have to prove it. You have to live through the years to be to become a champion, and so on. And if you are too reckless in certain in certain ways, I don't want to talk bad about Stefan. He had a lot of talent, obviously, and he was a very good driver, sure. But um, he was, of course, made larger than life after his after his death after his accident, and that is it's typical, you know that. Afterwards, she said, oh, he would have been a da-da-da, he would have been quicker than Senna, he would have been quicker than Schumacher, he would have been... I said, guys, it's pretty academic to talk like that. In order to survive racing, you have to have respect for what you do as a driver and the respect towards the other guys on the circuit as well. So um, don't just think that you are... Fa said that once he said you must always try to be the best but never believe that you are you know yeah, yeah. always strive to be and so on but um if you come in with an attitude and you think easy this easy that i mean you all have a certain amount of this sort of attitude within you otherwise you don't need to race but uh, you still have to respect. thing what you do it's dangerous it's fast it's um it's much more fun to finish a race than crashing (laughs) i can (laughs) assure you that it's um but you know it's um it this sort of message didn't get through to all of them so some guys were pretty reckless and that's a pity
1: yeah now i just i should go back to these questions i did find that Question about your contract, finding. That was actually asked by um, someone called Chris Phillips. Um, Michael Skeet, uh, who asked the um, IndyCar America question, he's also wondering whether there's any plans for an English edition of your autobiography because it would make a fantastic read.
2: <laughs> yes, I'd love to. I'd love to have that. Yeah.
1: <laughs> um, there's one here from Michael, um, who's got uh, it's a surname I'm not going to begin to pronounce because I'll just get it wrong and it'll be very embarrassing. Um, how would you compare Emerson and James as teammates? And then as a second question. Um, it was, it's, it's how, what did you consider most difficult or challenging at Le I think we probably sort of slightly covered that, Michael, earlier in the podcast. Um, but let's go for the Emerson versus James as, as teammates.
2: I can only judge it from my relationship with Emerson first. It was, um, I respected him a lot, great driver, but he was also a good politician and so on and so on. Don't forget, he was already world champion when he came to the team. And there I was sort of in my second year of racing, really, you know, with him. And um, he realized, too, that I got under the light of things, same engines, more or less, you know, I mean, slight differences. But um, I got up to par with him in speed quite often. And um, I think he realized that too. Don't forget, he's been already quite a number of years and he's been through all this sort of fantastic uh, success, um, successes and all that. So um, that's why he sort of split. And I think with James, um, it would have been very much the same. I think he would have, he would have quit the team, Emerson. He, I don't think he would have liked to run with James. Because if James would have been the obvious favorite driver in the team, Emerson would have n- never accepted that because he was the, the kingpin. You know, he was he had brought more or less the sponsorship with him because Marlboro Brazil was a, a big thing, and of course, you know, for McLaren too, they got uh, good deals because of Emerson. And with James, that would have been probably the following year. But Emerson would have not stayed with James more than a year, for sure enough. Mm.
1: The, just on, on, on that note, um, you sort of helped with Ron Howard's, Ron Howard's Rush film. Mm. Um, what did you make of that? Because, uh, you know, you were sort of, you were there, you were literally right in the thick of it. And um, what did you think of the finished <laughs> yeah. article?
2: I think it was beautifully done. It's done... Uh, I think the acting was pretty good. Chris Hemsworth did a very good job with James. And, um, you know, and Brühl, the young Austrian, he was also brilliant, brilliant with Nikki and so on. So it was from a film point, from the filming, it was beautiful. The story itself, okay, was interesting enough. But um, to me, having been sort of in it at the time, I looked at it slightly with a skew eye and I thought but um, you know don't forget James only won the championship because of Nikki's accident he would have not won it and um, you know James never looked at it like that sort of he took it beating his chest and it was him 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 he was very lucky he was a good driver, of course, but he also had, he was very much favored within the team, with me and him. And, um, you know, when we had this sort of story from Keith Duckworth later, that they had 70 horsepowers more, we don't have to repeat that, that made me afterwards think, and I thought, damn it, this sort of thing, <laughs> you know, sort of, uh, but it's normal. There was the three guys, it was Andretti, Schechter, there was the turtle. Of course, and the Lotus and McLaren. So hmm. suddenly they went they, they left us. These three guys, they were always ahead of us. And we thought we forgot how to drive. I mean Emerson with his Kopazuka, he was not in the game anymore, anyway, because the car was not good enough. But um, you know, some other drivers too, and it's just anyway, and then later when I had I drove the McLaren. Sorry, sorry. After I stopped with McLaren, I drove the ATS, which was a fatal mistake, nearly, nearly fatal. (laughs) And um, so then I should have driven for Frank Williams. And, you know, all the years he spoke to me, I said, Frank, but your cars are not so hot in the moment. I'm still with McLaren. So obviously, you know, I like the guy a lot because we met quite often with with Brody, uh, Brody. You know the the other driver and um, some other guys you know it was a nice group of friends and frank was uh, a very nice character and so on so even alan jones came along he said drive for us next year drive with me you know i said yes i'd love to let me and then jackie oliver came and he had the warsteiner money from germany so that was um, and they said, oh, that pay me so much and blah, blah, blah. And Frank said, I've got the okay from the Saudis, but I don't have it in writing yet. So I can't give it to you in writing until let's say in the four weeks time, when they come back, you know, to work or whatever. And um, so Jackie had the, the rod, had the, the thing, the bait way out. <laughs> so, you know, I signed for them, but don't forget it was Tony Southgate's car, and it was Ricardo Patrese, who was quite quick with the uh, with the arrows, and um, so I thought can't be that bad. So, <clears throat> obviously, so unfortunately, then I missed it, and then later, yeah,
1: yeah, anyway. Um- on the, on the Ron Howard's topic, I I went to go and watch that being filmed at Crystal Palace Rush. And I'd, I actually ended up being thrown off the set, um, which is a story for another day. But before I did, I asked Ron Howard, um, is he going to find it difficult to make a film about Formula One when he doesn't really watch or like Formula One? And he replied to me, which I still think is one of the all-time greatest replies. He said, and obviously he um, was a director of Apollo 13. Yeah, and he said... Well, I've never been to the moon, which <laughs> I thought was quite good. Um, I just I wanted to go back to the the cyber Mercedes years, um, because by then, you know, you weren't an elder statesman, but you were, you know, you were one of the sort of the leading drivers and you were kind of, in some part, a mentor to Venlinger, Frentzen and Schumacher. Um, and I'm sure I heard you say somewhere that actually really in terms of natural talent, Frentzen kind of was the standout of that three for you?
2: Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. When the guys came, they tested and each one had a slight different approach and so on. And I could see they were very quick. Frensen was probably the most spontaneous, easy, easy come, easy go guy. And he was very fast instantly. And Michael took a little more time to set the car to his liking and to work with it a little bit and so on, and then Wendlinger was a little more cautious. Carl and um, he took the longest to do similar times, but he was quick anyway. I mean, he was very quick, but it took him a bit longer to get there. And Michael liked to play with the car and to to change this, change that. So um, there's something he saw and he felt where he could improve you know, and so on. And time proved him right at the end. You know, it was, uh, he was, let's say, the most uh, critical and the most, um, um, the most meticulous driver we had in the car, for sure.
0: Mm.
1: No, we, are, we are slowly running out of time, but I just wanted to kind of bring everything up to date and ask you about Lamar today, because, you know, one of your things yeah. that you weren't too keen on at Le Mans in, in your day was you know you, you weren't going flat out whereas nowadays you know they are it is a 24-hour sprint do you think you would have enjoyed today's hybrid cars
2: yeah of course sure but you know i find Le Mans now with the chicanes in the, in the straight and all the chicane over the Dunlop and all this it's more dangerous now than it was then because there are too many changes on the track that for you as a driver you go from the left to the right to the left you stay right, you enter to the left-hand, you know, the second chicane, the first chicane, you enter to the right, and um, it's, uh, it's always points where you had quite a few crashes, quite a few get-togethers, and of course the mixture of cars is also such, they have this high downforce, amazing cars, <clears throat> they don't look much good, but um, they are very effective, very very efficient and um, you know they're amazing so you drive them flat out you know for 24 hours and that's something you know we still had to watch it a bit when i drove with michael (coughs) no i didn't drive with michael but i mean he drove the other car and he was going very fast and i said to him because we drove the same same hours um i said michael i think you drive a little too quick he said may seem quick to you for me it's nothing (laughs) I said, um, <laughs> I was second by then. Uh, anyway, so I I said, Michael, it's it's not your speed, damn it. It's, uh, it's the load of the car at that speed that you risk that you have a problem later, because if you go that fast, you know, uh, you get wheel bearings, you have all sort of with brakes, perhaps, so God knows what. So that's exactly what happened later. <coughs> and he came along and he said, I think you were right, Johan. I think I went too quick. I said, well, I'm glad that you say it. But <laughs> now he was good with that. He sort of, yeah. But anyway, Lamar. Now, yes, I would like to do it, but you three, four guys in the car. Three minimum. Because don't forget these cars are very harsh. They're very hard. And you know, there's no creature comfort. The seats are hard and the suspension and everything and because of you know it's not very bumpy the track luckily but um, still you know you you have this sort of and it works on you and it's it wears you out quite easily so you have to be super fit and um, it helps when you're light you know when you're lightweight (laughs) you bounce less you know (laughs) when you you put on a lot when you put a lot of weight into the car in your in your shape (laughs) so anyway yeah
1: Counts me out. So I think it would be nice to, to to end on a on a reader's question here. We got one from uh, Matt Stelmacher, who's um, wondering what your favorite corner is at any circuit in the world, um, and in which car was it most thrilling or satisfying to get right?
2: Usually, I liked fast corners. You know, you had a fantastic one in, in Mexico, the um, Peraltada, or whatever it was called, long right hander. You had Monza it was beautiful. I like that. You know, Monza was fantastic. The Curva, Curva Grande. You had, um, and then you had the Lesmos, the two beautiful corners, and then hmm, the Ascari, the old one before the chicane. Then of course you had the uh, the long right hander before start and finish. It's got a name I forgot. Anyway, Spa, Spa was fantastic. The beautiful corners. You know, it's. It's something, you know, which I always liked fast corners better than slow ones because the slow ones were more technical and technical stuff. (laughs) I wanted to drive and the fast corners were fantastic. It was good. No, it was nice. It was um, so, you know, Yet Watkins Glen, I quite like too, but Watkins Glen was highly, highly dangerous because of the nature of the guardrails. It was very soft steel, very soft. And uh, so whenever a car hit it, it, sort of flexed completely and it opened up and not good. And um, so, but other than that, it was a beautiful circuit. And of course uh, the oval oval racing, you know, in Daytona, depending on the car, of course, you know, if you have a fast car, it's more exciting than slowish one because then you nearly fall off the banking. But um, racing is good as long as you move fast. There's a peace in speed I never found in stillness. <laughs> so well,
1: what a it's wonderful,
2: what huh? a
1: wonderful um, line to, to end yeah. on. Um, Jochen, I feel as I've held you up enough already, because like, you'll be due your Sunday lunch, and you haven't had a single drink of your Prosecco. I'm very impressed that you've got through this entire hour without touching it's your It's looking drink. at me the whole time. And it's winking at you now, isn't it? I yeah. sure do well cheers, cheers. <laughs> Jochen. thank you so much it's been absolutely fantastic it always is with you um, thank you very we'll much we'll see you hopefully at some Goodwood events this year I would have thought Festival of Speed Revival members meeting that would be
2: lovely yeah of course I mean I'm sent to go to all of them let's just hope yeah. that it, it happens
1: yeah well fingers crossed but Thank you to Jochen. Thank you also to Alan Hyde, who's in the background making these things sound a lot better than we actually are. And thank you to all of us, uh, all of you, sorry, the uh, readers and the listeners and the viewers. Uh, We'll be back soon with another Motorsport Magazine podcast. Thank you very much. Bye-bye for now.